This used to be a hell of a good country. I can't understand what's going on with it. Man, everybody got chicken, that's what happened. Hey, we can't even get into like a second-rate hotel. I mean, a second-rate motel, you dig? They think we're gonna cut their throat or something, man. Like, they're scared, man. Oh, they're not scared of you. They're scared of what you represent to them. Amen. Oh, we represent to them, man, as somebody who needs a haircut. Oh, no. What you represent to them is freedom. What the hell's wrong with freedom, man? That's what it's all about. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's what it's all about, all right. But talking about it and being it, that's two different things. I mean, it's real hard to be free when you are bought and sold in the marketplace. Of course, don't ever tell anybody that they're not free, because then they're going to get real busy killing and maiming to prove to you that they are. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're going to talk to you and talk to you and talk to you about individual freedom. But they see a free individual, it's going to scare them. No, well, don't make them running scared. No, it makes them dangerous. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of A Thousand and One by One, where we take a film out of the wonderful book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die. Discuss it analyze it, and ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book. My name is Adam St. John. And my name is Ian Woodington. And we are back at it after a week hiatus. Um, We apologize for that, but, you know, we're humans. We had to take a little break. Don't speak for yourself. Uh, Okay. Uh, One human, one, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what, what, uh, where you're from. Not here. Okay, cool. Um, but yeah, we had a little, hi- we had a little hiatus. Um, you know, live is just kind of get ahead of us, and uh, it's the first one we've done in, in in however many episodes now. So, but we're back this at is, it. This is episode thirty-four, I think. Yeah, I sure that sounds something. sounds right. That sounds good. We we should probably be keeping better track of this. Well, we we, uh, we are. You know, it'll show up on the episode when when it when it drops. Um, yeah, just been we've been busy, but um, I'm really excited. So we're recording today. Uh, three episodes. I'm I'm excited about all of them. Uh. Not necessarily going to recommend all of them, but I am excited about uh, talking about them because I think there's a lot to talk about. So anyways, before we do that, we are going to give you some recommends. So Ian, would you like to go first? No, please. Okay. Uh, mine, my recommend this week uh, has nothing to do, absolutely nothing to do with the film that we're talking about. Um, but I'm excited to talk about this film because uh, I finally watched it and it was a movie I could watch with uh, with Melissa and my my oldest daughter Stella, and we finally watched Spider Man into the Spider Verse. Oh, I'm very excited to hear about this. I haven't seen it yet. This movie is awesome. It is fantastic. I was listening to somebody the other day talk about it, and I think it's this is the most apt way to to kind of describe the the weird run that it's had. It, it it's I think both the most overhyped movie of 2018. And yet, somehow, also the most underrated. See, I would give the overhyped thing to to something like Hereditary. I don't know. I, this movie, I mean, I feel like a lot of people were talking about it, but not a whole lot of people saw it. But the people who did see it 
were clamoring. I mean, people were talking about like, why was this not up for Best Picture? Not just animated feature, but Best Picture. There was a lot of a lot, you know, podcasts I listened to and like Hollywood things I read that this, you know, this is a great movie. And I thought I thought it might not live up to the hype. You know, I just thought, man, I hope it's, I hope it's not. And it was it was so great. Um, in the very, I mean, it's it's a and it's a really simple plot. Um, this young kid, Miles Morales. Um, he's sort of, he goes to a prep school, but he's not from that. You know, definitely is growing up in like kind of inner city New York, but he's going to this fancy high school, boarding boarding school, and uh, he's out. He does he does graffiti tagging, you know, and he's out there one night and he gets bit by a spider, um, and and as you do, and, and thus is going to become a Spider Man. Um, so the Spider Man in this world is voiced by Chris Pine, and Chris Pine is trying to kind of show him the ropes and. Um, Kingpin, who is voiced by Lee of Schreiber. By the way, I got to say, the voice acting in this, phenomenal. Well, you had me at Lee of Schreiber. Dude, it's... I've been in love with that guy since Scream. It's so good. It's so good. And so, um, kind of a spoiler, but it's also, it's in the movie, so I'm not, I'm really not going to give anything. So, so Lee of Schreiber kills Spider-Man. Kingpin kills Spider-Man. But because of what's happening, like, the big problem is that there's this super collider, and it opens up this, this, like, weird portal, and... Thus, we get all these different Spider-Mans, these different the Spider-Verses, and so there's Peter B. Parker, who is voiced by and I Jake Johnson, who I only know I know he's from the New Girl, so they kind of pick like a, a kind of a dorkier sounding guy to be this alternate Spider-Man, and he comes into the play, and so now he's gonna try to help Miles with all these other things, and then there's a Spider, there's a Spider Woman, um, and that's um Haley Steinfeld again, she's she does great in it, um. Do you know the voice casting though? Do you know any of the I, I know John Mulaney is Spider Ham and okay. I know that Nick, Nick Cage, Cage is, yes. is Spider Noir. So here's the thing. Spider Man Noir, Nick Cage, is great. But the best casting in this movie is John Mulaney as Spider Ham. It I can't even tell you how how funny it is. It's so great. And he's and he's not in it that much, but it is priceless. And what's great is Kids will like it. Like Stella liked it for the the kind of the physical humor, and it's just kind of fun. It's bright and colorful. Well, it's got a weird kind of like almost cell shaded look to it, right? Well, it, and it moves. The frame rate is different. It, it it doesn't move quite like an animated feature. It's a little bit different, and it feels very comic booky. It's 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 wonderful. Um, so Stella likes it just because it, it's it's fun. It's a fun movie. She enjoyed the hell out of it. But adults will like it a because it's very it's very meta. There's a lot of winking at the camera, and it's also it make it's it's very self-referential. In the beginning, there's this whole like kind of recap of who Spider-Man is, and they make they kind of make fun of the the original Sam Raimi trilogy. There's an animated shot of the upside-down kiss and holding up the subway car and the weird dance that he does in the spider in the third Spider-Man. Oh Jesus! It is. Can we can we not just I. But it's so funny. It it's it's it it doesn't take itself too seriously and yet takes itself very seriously. And the Kingpin backstory is just it's so wonderfully told and there's a great thing with Miles and his dad and his uncle. I Oh and I mean um Mahershala Ali is in this thing too. And and uh David or was it Brian Tyree Henry? I I think I might be saying his name wrong. He was in If Bill Street Could Talk. It's the the, the voice casting in this is great. I I was just smiling the whole way through, man. I was so entertained by this movie. And again, I know when we recommend movies, sometimes sometimes it might just be like a soft recommend. Like, it's good. You should watch it. And other times, it, I mean, I drop what you're doing 
and watch this movie. It is it is so much fun. It so was. It's, it sounds like the reaction you had to this is the same one that I had to the uh, the Halloween sequel reboot. Okay. Kind of you know forget all the other junk and this is the direct sequel. Yeah. Yeah. Which have you have you seen that yet? Not to derail you. Uh, no, I haven't. Okay. I haven't. Yeah. I'll I'll probably save it for next Halloween and watch 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 the original and then watch that one next yeah. without watching well, that yeah, no, other they, bullshit. Yeah. They do. They they do make a nice little back to back complete sort of experience nice nice well so yeah so anyways so spider-man into the spider-verse it's new so i mean you can rent it anywhere I, it's probably not i know it's not free anywhere yet but um i it's worth the rent i mean i bought it and it, i'm so glad i did because I, I know over the years this will be something that i watch with stella and probably even just myself because i just i had a blast watching it so that's awesome that's all great right to hear because it's right. very high up on my list yes good yeah you boop, bump it up all right, so Ian, what do you have for us this week? I have, and this will probably come as no surprise to you, the man who killed Don Quixote. So they did a Fathom Events thing for this uh, weeks and weeks back now, like three or four weeks. Um, and then I think it had a very soft, limited release before it's going straight to video on demand. But as you know, the story with the man who killed Don Quixote, it's been gestating for somewhere between 25 and 30 years, and now... Terry Gilliam is very famous. The The story of making it is more famous than the actual film will go on to be because it is very, it's very Gilliam. It's yeah. Gilliam completely unhinged and off the rails and everything that you would expect from a Gilliam film and more. It's very indulgent and about 20 minutes longer than it needs to be, as most of Gilliam's things, you know, tend to be. Um, but Jonathan Price, I mean, and I, I don't think I have to really go into the plot all that much i think there's enough has been said about it to where you know but as a quick overview adam driver is a filmmaker he's out there shooting a commercial in spain that is has the flavor of don quixote you know it's the whole old man attacking the windmill thinking that it's a giant and all of that and uh he's he goes off on uh, on his motorcycle because he's become disenfranchised with this whole thing he feels like he's missing some of that student film flavor and his his love of film and filmmaking is kind of going by the wayside. And so he gets on a, a motorcycle and drives off into town only to realize, oh, I've been here before. This is where I shot my student film version of Don Quixote. And he meets the old man that he had cast, only to find out that this man has fallen deep down the well into believing that he is really Quixote. And having to deal with his fallout of being there. I mean, it's, it's a great way to approach the story and to, to let us in. Because I've, I've read about 60% of Cervantes' novel, and it is very 1500s. It's very, very difficult to get through. Sure. It's very, very dry. I mean, there's great stuff in it. But I, at the time that I was reading it, just did not have the patience to, to finish it. Um, and while we're speaking of patience, I mean, as I mentioned, Gilliam films do require a certain bit, but he's one of these filmmakers, and I know we talked about this when we did our Brazil episode, but he, there is a lot to love about his films. The score in this is we walked out of the, so I went with, with Liz and her parents because I know how much, I knew that they wouldn't want to miss out on this because they've been waiting for this just as long as anybody else, and sure. they're huge Gilliam fans. Um, and the first thing we all said when we walked out of it is, wow, the score it's it's I, I wish I'd written down the name of the composer, but it's one of the best scores in any Gilliam film. Uh, and the costumes and the production design are all just luscious and lavish, but it is 
it's very indulgent Gilliam. I mean, it's up there, I'd say, as far as indulgence goes, it's up there definitely with something like Tideland or, you know, the long cut of, of Brazil. Oh, it's yeah, definitely yeah. It's definitely missing the same kind of magic that he had when he created uh, Time Bandits and when he directed... Um, something like the Fisher King. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't even say this thing is, is anywhere near as good as 12 monkeys, if I'm honest, but it is worth it for the two leads for Adam driver and Jonathan price. They are both absolutely spectacular. In it. And it's really nice to see something like Brazil come full circle with their sort of pairing with Gilliam. Obviously they, I, I know that he was in brothers Grimm a little bit but it's nice to see him in a leading role yeah. in a gilliam film again and to feel that sort of feeling of camaraderie yeah that i felt the first time that i saw brazil because these two men do work very very well together and they do bring out the best in each other and and jonathan price even went as far as saying oh i've been waiting in the wings for this like i you know as soon as everything went wrong the first time that you tried to to mount this massive uh, project. I've, I've been waiting in the wings and waiting for you to come to me and say, hey, I want you to be my Quixote. So it was really nice to have that sort of catharsis, knowing that he wanted this role and yet didn't, you know, yeah, didn't go about campaigning for it or anything like that. Just bided his time sure, and waited for it to happen. Now, there's, there's a missed opportunity there. I would have loved to have seen um, the Ewan McGregor, John Hurt pairing that he was trying to, to oh. do in the mid-2000s. Yeah, that yeah. would have been very interesting. And I, I love John Hurt. But anyway, yes, um, it's on video on demand now. You can rent it on most streaming platforms. And if you are a Gilliam completionist like I am, I definitely highly recommend it. If you're a Gilliam completionist, you've probably seen it already. But sure. for anybody yeah. who's who's hesitant, I, I will say there is a lot to be valued in it. Just be prepared that it is, it's meta Gilliam. Okay. All right. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. All right. I don't think it'll be very high up on your list, but it's... Uh, as I said, it's worth it for Jonathan Price. Well, and there's a lot of there's a lot of Gilliam I haven't seen. Yeah, yeah. No, no, so, yeah, we addressed that. I think yes. when I went through and ranked his stuff, I think you had seen maybe four of them. Oh God, not not including Python. Right? Not not including the Python stuff. No, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I Twelve think... Monkeys, Fisher King, Brazil. Oh, that's right. You haven't seen Time Bandits. No. I keep for some reason I no. keep thinking you've seen that. Nope, nope. You're missing out, buddy. I'm sure I pick am. pick up that wonderful Criterion. Speaking of wonderful Criterion collection. Nice films, segue. No problem. Um, we are talking about a film today that is uh, not to the date or anything, but uh, this year. We're, we're, two, we're two days shy. We're two days shy? Hot of the, damn. Of the, uh, the Cannes premiere. Look at that. Look at that. Um, we are talking about the 1969 groundbreaking and um, – Game changing, game changing. The, the I was going to say revolutionary, but definitely yeah. game changing film. And we are talking about Easy Rider, uh, directed by Dennis Hopper, written contentiously maybe um, by Dennis Hopper. And we don't, Peter, we don't have the time to unpack Peter, that. Peter Fonda and Terry Southern. Um, and I really talk about the producers, but but produced by Peter Fonda. Um, so it really was. This was a, a, a definitely a, a brainchild. Um, that was really, really brought forth by by Fonda and Hopper. Well, he had owed AIP a uh, a biker flick because you know those were all the rage in the uh, mid to late sixties. Well, it's starting as far back as the fifties with Brando. I think in the Wild One was the really the uh, the, the the high benchmark yeah. of biker films. Yeah. Um. So uh, our our cast. Uh, Peter Fonda plays Wyatt. Dennis Hopper plays Billy, and we'll get into those names a little bit later. Um, the other, uh, the other, um, 
actors I had written down was uh, Lucas Skew, who I only saw listed as Stranger on Highway. Yeah, he doesn't have a name. Yeah, okay, that's what I thought. And then Jack Nicholson is George Hansen. Now, I know you could talk about um, uh, Karen Black, who's in it, and I don't remember her name. Uh, Tony, Tony Basil plays Mary. Okay. Yeah. The, the, the other prostitute. Yes, I don't think yes. they even mention either of their names. But I didn't. I didn't really write down. Um, a guy named Warren Finnerty plays the rancher, who I think has a fun little turn. Yeah, he's um, fantastic. But I, th- those are the names I have. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you had anybody else. You no, that's that's all I have. Okay, great. Um, so uh, this movie uh, again is 1969. Uh, it, there's no other films from Dennis Hopper in the book, which, um, not as a director anyway. Yeah, well, sorry. Yes, very true. Um, which isn't totally surprising. Um. I was nominated for a couple of Academy Awards, uh, supporting actor and original screenplay, um, which it lost both. Um, Nicholson lost to Gig Young, both at the Academy Awards and the Globes. I think Gig Young's movie was "They Shoot Horses, Don't They." It sounds right. And uh, the 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 actually he lost the BAFTA as well to Laurence Olivier. Ah, for uh, "Oh What a Lovely War." And I, then, I have uh, no idea what that even is. Lost original screenplay to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which is not. I think surprising at all. Yeah. Now, um, okay. I'm gonna listen. I'll just list a couple more things because I want to come back to that because there's something kind of really interesting. I, I kind of about this year. Um, so uh, right now, this movie sits at number 84 on the AFI Top 100 list. Uh, the last list, it was number 88. So I moved up a little bit. Um, it won Best First Film at Cannes. Although, uh, and Dennis Hopper said this himself, he really fucking wanted to win the Palm Door. Like he went into this movie thinking, I want to win the Palm Door. Uh, so I think I don't think I don't think winning best first feature was ex- he wanted more. Yeah. He wanted more. Uh, he was definitely shooting for the stars there. Um, and uh, hey, Ian, was this film inducted into the National Film Registry? Yes, it was, sir. 1998. Hey, oh, so, yeah, we are uh, we're talking about some movies that aren't going to be going anywhere anytime soon. Um, the last thing I want to mention kind of around this is that. So um, and did you have the, the Rotten Tomatoes? Yes, I hadn't, well, I hadn't gotten there yet. Oh, sorry. Uh, please, oh, let's, let's please, talk, no, let's please talk continue. So, so Rotten Tomatoes has a uh, 89 uh, with an audience score of 82, which um, sounds right. Doesn't surprise me. I think the critical score should probably – it makes sense to be higher than the audience score. Um, and it's not on the IMDb Top 250, which is um, inexcusable, I, I think. I definitely find that a bit surprising. I feel like – I feel like that's something that should. Oh, here it is. Okay. So, um, I was surprised because this is truly an independent film. I mean, this was not, there was not a lot of money thrown behind this movie. And I was surprised when I found out that this was the third highest grossing film in 1969 domestically. And so I was like, okay, well, what else, what else came out around this time? Well, B- Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid was the number one film that year with $102 million. Well, I've, I've read interviews with people who claim they saw Butch Cassidy, you know, young filmmakers, people, young people at the time that went on to be filmmakers. The guy who directed a wonderful Edward Norton film, uh, Down in the Valley, he claims to have seen Butch Cassidy 17 times in 1969. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so and that, it blows away the competition. It's the next closest one isn't, it's not even close. And so, 102 million, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. Number two that year was Midnight Cowboy. And again, I think that is insane. I, these two movies were the top two. So, Midnight Cowboy had 45 million, only edging out um, number three, which is Easy Rider, by like 3 million. Uh, 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 Easy Rider had 40, $41.7 million. 
the number four movie that year, and I'm not going to keep going. This is the last one I'm talking about. But this is the kind of movie I imagine would have been number one, which was number four was Hello, Dolly. And that had $33 million, which, again, is not that close to Easy Rider. It's about $8 million away. And the so, times they were a-changing. Exactly, man. yes. And and this movie, even though Butch Cassidy was the number one, this movie to me and Midnight Cowboy in a way really show how Hollywood and films were changing and what people wanted to see. And usually it's I feel like it's reflected like postscript. Like we can talk now about, ooh, Hollywood was changing and here you can see it. But, man, it's really reflected in these numbers. I mean, people wanted to go see these kinds of movies. So, yeah, I just think that's that's great. Um, oh, well, I'm glad you had all those figures because I didn't even think to do that. Well, I, I was just in, – in what in what I was reading, I saw that it was number three, and, I, and I, I even thought that was high. I was – I think what caught my eye was that this movie as – I mean, because Peter Fonda was kind of a name, but Dennis Hopper had burned so many bridges in Hollywood, and Jack Nicholson was on the rise, but he wasn't Jack Nicholson yet. Well, well the interesting thing that I, I was reading, and I think they mentioned it in the Shaking the Cage documentary. Oh, Nicholson, so good. Nicholson was burnt out. Yeah. And wanted to give up on that. He actually wanted to start his own studio. Yep. And so they had to really like twist his arm to get him to be George Hansen. So and, that was something I found really interesting. Thank God they did because he hadn't even made One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest yet. He hadn't made Five Easy Peasy. He hasn't. Nope. He hadn't made the films. That's that's what I mean. Yeah, that he, would cement him as the greatest working actor of his day. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So so yeah. It's, so it was just it was just great to see this movie that high up in a in a. In a in a list of you know, and it doesn't. I'm not surprised that Butch Cassidy did as well as it did, but um, yeah, I was just that just kind of blew me away. So that's, were you even surprised to see that it was in the top ten then? I don't, I you know, I don't know. I top ten wouldn't have shocked me. You know, it did. It was up for some Academy Awards and stuff, and and they weren't they weren't nobodies, but I don't know. Number three just seemed like really impressive. You know, and and you know, comparing what it was what it took to make it and what it made, definitely one of the most successful films of all time. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, and the, I think they were surprised by that as well because they were going up against uh, like a Rock Hudson Doris Day picture. They were going up against something like Pillow Talk. Yes, yeah. And going, we want to make the anti version of Pillow Talk because this isn't what the kids want anymore. You know, we're in tune with the counterculture. We know what people want, right? Yeah. And so to 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 blow away a Rock Hudson Doris Day picture. I mean that that in itself is a feat at the time. I think I agree. Yeah. I agree. Or, or you know, because the the movie that won Best Picture the year before this is Oliver, right? And so, and we're not too far from Sound of Music. We're not too far from My Fair Lady. We're still like musicals haven't left. They're still there, which is why, again, I'm I don't know why I'm harping on the numbers so much, but like it beat Hello Dolly, which. Is it is not an unknown musical? I, I'm I'm just I I see that and I go, okay, yeah, you can literally see that this this change was happening. I know sixty seven is quoted a lot with uh, Bonnie and Clyde and the Graduate and sort of seeing that, but like you can see that like that shift happened and it was on its way. Yeah, even just looking at the numbers. Well, and you had at that time you had somebody like Roger Corman spearheading that kind of anti-establishment movement, which thank God he did because he produced some of the best directors and actors. Did you, you know, read of the day? He was supposed to produce this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe he calls it the the single worst decision he ever made. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That that up there is up. That's one of those like ah, damn, what a missed opportunity. That's up there for me with uh, Harrison Ford turning down Jurassic Park. So I I pulled a review 
uh, Gene Moskovitz of um, Variety. And yeah, I, just, I, I saw that one. I just pulled it without having read it. And then I when I went to go read it, I was like, this is an awful review. It's it basically just it's a plot summation. And that's it. And I was like, oh, there's, I can't pull anything from this. Well, so. that's, that's the thing. I'm glad you brought up critics because it seems like a lot of critics weren't, and to use a, a, a phrase from the day, they weren't hip to it. Yeah. They kind of, I think they, they found some things to appreciate about it and kind of could smell that change was coming. And this was going to be one of the films that spearheaded that kind of change. But they weren't, they weren't enthralled by it. I, I read three or four reviews from the time and I was like, well, I'm not going to bother quoting any of these guys. Because they're they're very lukewarm to it, which surprised me. Well, it well it, I should say it didn't. It didn't surprise me. So so instead, I I want to read something from um the essay that's in the Criterion Collection, the BBS, the Lost and Found, the BBS story. Um, because I really I actually really enjoyed the essay in there. Um, it's uh written by uh, Matt Zoller Seitz, and it's called Easy Writer, Wild at Heart. And I actually pulled a lot from it, but I'm going to read part of um, the last paragraph. So uh, bear with me for the length of this. Um, but I think it really hits home at a lot of things. And I think it'll kind of help lead us into talking about um, the film itself. Given Easy Rider's sledgehammer impact on pop culture, it's tempting to treat it as a fluke, a curiosity, and a time capsule. A film that became a surprise hit because it showed young viewers a life that they knew quite well, but hadn't yet seen accurately on film. The language, the sex, the drugs, the clothes, the music. That's true. But Easy Rider also transcends its cultural moment because it's about more than bikers and hippies or the tension between libertines and reactionaries. It's about the difficulty of escaping social conditioning and economic imperatives and sustaining a truly free life. Hopper, Fonda, and Southern don't merely validate a mythical image of life outside the mainstream. They show how in touch it is to live that way. The members of the commune Billy and Wyatt visit eke out a subsistence, subsistence, I can't even say that word, subsistence living. Our heroes spend so many nights outdoors, not because they love looking at the stars, but because even low rent motels won't take guys who look like them. So let's talk about these guys. The movie opens very interestingly. Well, it just starts and it just drops you in. And, and I don't, this is a movie with, with like no plot. They want to get to Mardi Gras. That's basically it. Um, and so like this like Coke deal, weird, like, okay, cool. We're going to do that. And, uh, and then sell it to another guy. And that's uh, Phil Spector, by the way. Yes. Yes. Um, Piece of shit. He was. I, I, you know, fair. Yeah. Fair point. I did. I, th- I thought it was funny that they, they chose him. I think because a, he had a Rolls Royce and B had his own bodyguard. And so they didn't have to pay for that. Thought that was kind of a okay, cool. He's, you know, he's in it for like two minutes. So we'll, we'll, well, when you have a budget that's three hundred and sixty k or four hundred k or whatever it ended up being, yeah, I mean, you gotta you gotta, you gotta cut corners, yeah, yeah, cut yeah, corners yeah. where you can. Um, and so yeah, so then they and then that's it's off. I mean, it's we're off, we're off into this this movie, and I love I I love the kick in with Born to Be Wild. It's it's one of the best lead ins to credits ever. I just just the music comes in and like okay, all right. Fucking, we're on these motorcycles now, and we are, we're driving, man. Well, and it wasn't it wasn't the first film to use predominantly found music. Uh, Hopper had mentioned that he had done a film in '67. Uh, I I can't remember the name of it, but they did something similar. But it, of course, again, was something else that that spearheaded was the idea of using found music and and songs that already exist and painting a landscape 
painting a sort of soundscape rather with you know music of the day and of the time to really ground it in you know this is happening now and this is the music that we're hearing while it happens yeah i mean lucas would i think go on to perfect that with american graffiti and then scorsese do him even one better yeah with something like goodfellas and casino yeah 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 you know it's funny i casino is, is so long and the more I think about Casino, the, the 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 kind of further down it goes on my on my on my Scorsese favorites, but I, his use of music in it is is great. It's it's really good. Yeah. Um, so I don't want. I'm not going to brush past anything that I'm. I'm, I'm going to skip a couple things and we can talk about it. But I I slowly got bored watching this movie. The commune sequence is it, very long. Yes, unnecessarily long. Yeah, and um, we got to the there was the point. It's in my notes. Where they're um, it's it's Hopper and Fonda and the the two gals and they're swimming in that little like wall that uh, stone wall area you know and they're and I wrote down on my notes okay I'm I'm starting to lose interest like and I get that we're just kind of we're just right in it with them now let's give this some context how many times had you seen Easy Rider this is my first time you have got to be kidding me. nope I have seen Easy Rider and I use this phrase a lot with a lot of films including Taxi Driver and and some others but I have seen Easy Rider and an unhealthy a number of times. Cool. Get a life, friend. Yeah, right? <laughs> the first time I saw Easy Rider, I was 12 years old, and it just shocked my little British 12-year-old mind. <laughs> like, it changed. It's up there with Blade Runner. It's up there with 12 Angry Men as you know, one of the films that changed the way that I approach films and change what I come to expect of films. Oh, I can a, see that. The, the sequence that really, and I'll get to my favorite shot right now because we're talking about it, when they're driving through the Red Rock area mm-hmm. and uh, the weight is playing there, that fabulous song by the band, you know, pulled into Nazareth must've been about half past 10. That one, that just shocked me. And like that, that sense of freedom because there's nothing in the UK that looks or sounds like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Those, the choppers and that kind of music, like British music is better full stop, but Especially of that particular time. I, I was going to say, I will, I will not you guys, argue with... Screw you guys. We had Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin, and that's, you know, that's all there is to it. I don't like the Beatles, but you could throw it in there. I mean, you I guys could. dominated it. For, we did. Yes. We, yeah, yes. we nailed it. I don't know. I say. couldn't tell you who's popular now, but I couldn't tell you who's popular in America now with music, yeah. so I, yeah. I'm out of touch with that. But that sequence just blew my mind to be like, wow, that is a place and a time that exists and, and still exists, and I, I want that. I want that so badly. Now is that the is that the sequence where that it ends with that wonderful like um, perfect moment shot where it's the sunset and it's and it's that nice kind of circle shot yeah and they're, they're they're climbing up the rocks with yeah the, with the hitch oh yeah that's that's gorgeous stunning that is absolutely that stunning. is absolutely gorgeous yeah um it's funny I'm gonna I kind of I kind of cheat with the favorite shot because that it's I have three I have my favorite. I guess I'm going to call it like my favorite camera move slash my, the most beautiful shot, which is that, that when they've kind of reached that point of the night before the campfire with the hitchhiker, that, that when they're climbing the rock, man, it's, it's gorgeous. It's, it's, it's serene and beautiful and, and like, it's perfect. Well, my, I'll get my unsung hero out of the way now as well. Laszlo Kovacs is the unsung hero of this film, his cinematography, what he had to work with the amount of money, Dennis Hopper being the stand up prick. Crazy asshole. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Laszlo Kovacs is a goddamn hero. Yeah. And his cinematography should not ever be understated. Yeah. Ever. And and if you, again, and I, because and I, I watched Shaking the Cage as well, um, 
What a wonderful documentary. Uh, it, it really – and it's great because they kind of go – they kind of go chronologically through the movie as well. I thought it was well put together and, uh, again, just kind of hearing the stories – it was was wonderful. I, yeah, it's, it's a great one of the greatest. Piece. It's yeah. one of the greatest behind the scenes documentaries. I still I think I've ever seen. Yeah, and and, and a very good retrospective. Like I don't know, clearly decades had passed since the time of the film and when they made it, which I, was great. I think the documentary was ninety nine ish. Yeah, I think, I think it was on an anniversary. Yes, I make yes, I think that's right. Um, which is great to have that to kind of let you know let time pass and really you know reflect on it. Um, so and then um, yes. Yeah, so you continue no, oh, no, with no, your, your your favorite shots. My favorite. But then I have such a it's early and it's such a short shot, but it's 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 uh, reminded me of that shot uh, from Strangers on a Train where he's strangling her and you can see it in the glasses that kind of there's that shot um, at the airport with the, the, the driver's side mirror and you can see the deal going on in, in the car. But then you can see the bodyguard and Hopper in, ref, in reflection in the and So just as like as a, a like a static shot, I really like that one. I'm jumping way ahead here and we don't we don't have to talk about it now, but. My favorite scene in the movie is the campfire scene with Jack Nicholson right before he gets killed with the bats. Oh, where he where he breaks character during his UFO speech? No, I don't think that's it. Oh, it's no, it's the one no, afterwards. It's the one that after I, they I left actually, the diner. I actually wrote down the dialogue it's, because it's the speech about being free. Yes, which and is so stunning. The back and forth is um. Basically, Jack Nicholson says, you know, this used to be a hell of a good country. I can't understand what's gone wrong with it. And then Billy says, man, everybody got chicken. That's what happened. Hey, we can't even get into like a second rate hotel. I mean, a second rate motel. You dig? They think we're going to they think we're going to cut their throat or something. They're scared, man. They're not scared of you. They're scared of what you represent to them. And I'm going to cut to the end. So this is this is the speech. He says, that's what it's all about. All right. But talking about it and being it talk about freedom. That's two different things. I mean, it's real hard to be free when you are bought and sold in the marketplace. Of course, don't ever tell anybody that they're not free because then they're going to get real busy killing and maiming to prove to you that they are. Oh, yeah. They're going to talk to you and talk to you and talk to you about individual freedom. But they see a free individual, it's going to scare them. That is one of the most perfect pieces of dialogue. And just so – there are times in movies where you just want to – you just kind of want to live in that moment. And, and, and I, I paused it right after this scene before he, I, before he got killed. So I came back to it, I was like, Jesus Christ. But I, I just wanted to sit in that because this was made in 1969 and what they're talking about, well, different. I just, I couldn't help but think you just, you, you could have pulled this from a movie made yesterday and, and it would have made just as much sense. Unfortunately, would have made just as much sense, and um, yeah, I, I, it was Jack. So Jack Nicholson, Jack Nicholson coming into this movie saved this movie for me because if you would have asked me up until right before they get arrested for the uh, 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 parading without a permit, which I think is great, um, I would have not recommended this movie. And Jack Nicholson, and then it just the, the stakes ways everything seems more. Um, there's more of a reason for things to be happening. And I, I fucking got pulled right back into this movie, and um, especially yeah. with his Nick, 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 what Nick a crazy, just a crazy. Which he, he stole as a little anecdote. He yes. stole that from uh, one of their motorcycle mechanics, a yes. guy named Gypsy. I believe he was a, a Native American guy, if I remember right. And the, after they saw Jack do that, they're like, "Man, you can't do that anymore. Everybody's gonna think you stole that from Jack." <laughs> <laughs> 
What about that fucking helmet, though, man? Oh, his uh, his, his football helmet. Football helmet. I love it, the story he tells. I threw this thing away three weeks ago, and then you know my mom fished it out of the trash. You know, you're never gonna know when you might want this or pass it down or whatever. I, that is such a. That's one of those rare little, perfectly human moments. Yeah. Like perfectly realized that just a, it's a little throwaway. You could do without it and you wouldn't miss it. But because it's in there, it humanizes the George Hansen character so well that yeah. when he does get killed, I still remember the first viewing. Uh, this is how impactful Easy Rider was on me. I yeah. remember the first time I saw it. And when he does get killed after they've had the, the sequence in the diner with the, the Hicks. Which we got to come back to. We, we will circle. There's a lot to be said. There's a lot to yeah. unpack with that. But I do remember crying during that and how angry it was. They weren't tears of sadness. They were tears of just flat-out anger that because they were different, because they looked different, because they sounded different, and the whole reason of going after the George Hansen character is he's the one that looks like them the most, and he's from that region. Uh, yeah. So this is a statement. You know, we'll beat up the other guys. We'll beat on on Billy and Wyatt. But no, we're going to kill George. That's a very deliberate choice that they made as writers and that those characters make. And it is so, I mean, my blood's boiling right now just thinking about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it's, again, I go back to, has it really changed all that much? No, not at all. When you consider, I, mean, I, I after I was finished watching Easy Rider, because I've seen Black Klansman again yeah. so recently... That jumped into my head, and the fact that he, Spike Lee, had the balls to put that Mustang driving through that crowd, which he absolutely should have done. Yeah. That needs to be seen, and it needs to be seen. Not, I, and I don't want to take anything away from the victims and the families. Of course, nobody needs to, you know, to to keep revisiting your pain. But on the other hand, people need to see that and see the hatred and see the divide that is happening not just in this country but the world over yeah it's it's one of the most important moments in our modern history yeah and it, and it needs to not be forgotten yeah in the same ways that you know this movie needs to not be forgotten yeah yeah well thankfully well and i well and i don't want to compare obviously this movie that movie is not as important as as that and those people's lives but what they're saying yeah right well and 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 you know, movies are a way that connect us. They're, they're, it's a medium, even though they can be entertaining, it also is meant to educate us, you know, to, to look past the, the, the pretty faces on the screen and to go, but they're saying something. They're saying something important and I need to listen to it. And, and the way in which the, uh, those guys in the coffee shop and then the two guys at the end, which we don't have to jump there yet, but just, just this mentality of, of ooh, they, they look different, therefore they must be bad. I mean, that's if you break it down, that's as simple as that, and yeah. it's it's just insane. It really it's, is as cut and dry as that. And I mean, and and you know, and it, and it's crazy. And I, the the thing about the the cafe scene, or one of the things that I I really enjoyed though, is that you have the girls in the next table, who clearly are interested in these guys, and and it's something dangerous and alluring, yes, and different. And see, they see the mystery, whereas the other guys just see you know the hatred. Oh, they are different. Yeah. But it just goes to show you that it's, you know, it's, it's like, this might be the, a weird comparison, but when I, when I, cause I went to, in, I was in Bloomington, Indiana for grad school, which isn't quite the South, but it is the Midwest. And, you know, Bloomington was a college town, very open, very artsy, very liberal. It was actually a great, I loved Bloomington. Go, go too far outside Bloomington 
and you were in KKK country. And I, and I don't say that as like a joke. Like I say that because you are in KKK country. And I just, I find that fascinating because IU is a big school. IU is a, um, I mean, it, it is multicultural to the max. It's a big university and it's got like, it's, it's got basketball, football. I mean, it's got all the sports. It's, it's, it puts a lot of colleges around here to shame and, you know, it was basically uh, uh, an unwritten rule that uh, if you were a person of color living in, in Bloomington and you had to go to the airport, which was in Indianapolis, make sure your gas is got full. It's full. It's your car full of gas before you leave um, because you're not going to want to stop between here and, and Indianapolis. Like that was a sort of an unwritten rule. I I was in Bloomington, Indiana from 2014 to 2000 or 2011 to 2014. That's not long ago. That's. That and, and but we were in the prime. We were in Governor Mike Pence days, man. That's when he was in Indiana, and it's just, yeah, yeah. Tangent, but related to what we're talking. But about. no, an important tangent. Yeah, it, and it's it's sad. I mean, I'm not gonna. I I did promise people on Twitter that I was going to curtail getting on soapboxes, but it does. It makes just talking. It makes my. It makes me so goddamn angry. Yeah, it really does because we're human beings. We're all here for similar purposes. We just want to get by and be the best people and live the best lives that we possibly can. So, yeah, who, who cares? He's different. She's different. It doesn't. Yeah, it drives me nuts, man. It drives me nuts that we were alive during something like apartheid. And I'm not going to get on my apartheid soapbox, but just yeah, it's, it's the same all over the world. It's just, it seems like there's nowhere you can go. Yeah. To escape it, even somewhere in my mind, paradise to me sounds like New Zealand. I've idolized New Zealand for years now. I mean, I, I'm obsessed with the culture. I'm obsessed with rugby, uh, which rugby is a huge part of their culture. I love how inclusive they are of, you know, Maori and Pacific Island peoples. It seems like it's it's very important to them that, hey, we weren't the first people here. And so we need to make sure that we include this. We are very inclusive of the peoples that were here before us. I mean, Absolutely. Their, their national anthem is in two different languages, yeah. which I mean, I know there are other places. I shouldn't rip just on South Africa. Their national anthem is in four different languages. Well, no, but, but you're, you're I, yeah. yeah. You see where I'm going. Yes. And the fact oh, that yeah, on March 15th, even they had one of the worst terrorist incidences in, in recent memory, you know, it seems like there is nowhere safe and it makes me very, very sad. I mean, it keeps me up at night. Yeah. Like the, when I, I watched the Fahrenheit 11, nine documentary. Oh, you watched it on. Oh, I didn't tell you this. No, I, I watched it. I didn't sleep. I, I'm telling you, Adam, I didn't go to sleep until about three o'clock that morning. Like it kept me awake. It's really effective. Yeah. And not, and not necessarily in a Michael Moore. I'm leading you down the pathway. A lot of it was just showing you shit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I was so it was so refreshing to see a Michael Moore, yes, you know, Sorry, movie I mean, that that was able to you know have its feet on both sides of the line yeah. and have them firmly on both sides of the line. Yeah, <sighs> yeah. Um, we we got a little philosophical, we got a little dark and deep, but well, but but kind of bringing it back and, and but keeping it with what we were just talking about. You know, I I, I so appreciate Hopper as a filmmaker because he 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 did not want quote unquote actors. For that cafe scene. Well, he didn't even want originally a professional crew, but the the Mardi Gras shoot going so disastrously Ooh, okay, put the kibosh on, let's, on that. Let's okay. I want to just briefly touch on this one thing, but let, we have to talk about Mardi Gras. Yeah. Um. So, but I that he that they found well, they went to this cafe that was a a um uh a segregated cafe. There yeah, was there a, were none. The none of those actors are professional actors. They're yes, all people that were there. There was the the guy was the real sheriff of that town, and. The, the, you know, and he wanted because he wanted authentic. He wanted people that legit 
did not like them. Well, and he also put it out there that, hey, you know, there's we just shot a scene where we killed and raped a girl. So I want you to have that in your even yeah. though they didn't. Yes. Like put that in your minds. Yeah. And you've heard about this. Yes. And you know we're coming. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. I'm just so eerie to say. I don't think they'll make it past the Parish line. Like, God, it, it's like it's not saying that I'm going to kill somebody. But it's saying that I'm going to kill somebody. Yeah. It, it's, well, didn't oof. they They even went, well, you talk about it being a segregated cafe. Didn't they go into the back to hang the, out? The cast and crew did. Yes. Yeah. They did. And of course, that just antagonized everybody further. Yeah. yeah. Which, I'm, I'm sorry. Fuck you guys. Well, of course. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, fucking, yeah, yeah. But Mardi Gras. Okay. So let's let's just talk about it. Yeah. Let's just talk about it. So, and how disastrously that went. Well, it was so funny. And this, I only knew this in hindsight, but I'm watching the movie. And again, Criterion, your restoration of this movie is fucking impeccable. It is gorgeous. And I, I, I spent the money not too long ago and I got like a fucking really, really fancy 4K TV. I had to do it. And um, it just looked, it looked wonderful. And then the Mardi Gras footage came. And I was like, oh, Oh no! There's nothing. There's nothing well, you can do to save that. But didn't so. But of course, I didn't know until later that there was like you know basically that was a test shoot. Here, let's round up anybody we know with a 16 millimeter camera and let's go to Mardi Gras and let's see what we can do. And this is where Hopper's I, fucking. I, I love the spirit of that. I know. I, I, I do love too. that idea. Yes, because it's not done anymore. Like people don't do that anymore. No. I think the closest we've gotten to that is the Florida Project, where he actually undercover went into. Disneyland and shot that final sequence. What is the movie that was shot entirely in Disneyland without permission? Do you know what I'm talking about? It, it wasn't Florida Project. No, no, no. There was a movie that. Oh, no, 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 no. I'll have to, I'll have to look it up. It, 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 this guy. It was shot on on iPhones and it looked more like a touristy thing. But they legit shot this entire movie in Disneyland without permission. Um, oh, that's wonderful. Fuck, I can't remember what it's called. I, I'll have I to love, look it up. I love that that feel of like that guerrilla filmmaking spirit. I, I love that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's gone away. It doesn't exist anymore. So what part of the um, what part of the Mardi Gras scene? I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about, but like, okay, when you think of the Mardi Gras scene, and that whole sequence, the the uh, everything shot 16 millimeter, what what comes to your mind first? Well, it it strikes me that you don't ever see them in the parade. <laughs> There's one shot of Karen Black. Yeah, and that's it. All the rest is like they had to like cut it in later. Yeah, kind of thing. Like I. I, I love hearing the stories about how antagonistic Dennis Hopper was during all of that. I, I think about I think about the behind the scenes thing and the Mardi Gras, if I'm honest, it doesn't really do a lot for me. It feels almost and of course that when they get to the end of the film and and, and uh, why it says we blew it. Yeah. That that to me is the Mardi Gras thing coming full circle because of how disaster that goes. The thing that is more prevalent in my mind when you're thinking about that sequence is is what comes next. You're talking about at the, the the acid sequence in yeah. the cemetery. Well, I, I guess I consider that the whole I, anything 16 millimeter is kind of what I was talking about. But yeah, it, it is it does it is it is definitely two separate moments. Right. Yeah. But the uh, I'm sorry, I don't want to pull away from Mardi Gras. Let's I'll, we'll have your impressions first, and then I'll move on to the LSD sequence. Well, I just love there was in in the documentary, and I don't know I don't actually know who this guy is, but somebody named um, Seymour Cassell, who I think maybe was just a friend who was like he was like a line producer. You who, don't know who Seymour Cassell is? No. Uh, Rushmore. He's the dad in Rushmore. He's the guy. He is. He was uh, again one of the pioneer. He worked with Cassavetes a lot. On was he in this movie? He's not. Well, why the hell was he in the documentary? 
because uh, he he had a camera. Oh, okay, okay. He great. was there for the shoot. So, so okay, that's that's what it was. Thank you very much. Um, so there's this whole thing about Hopper was telling everybody with a camera, you know, don't shoot anything without my permission. I I don't want people to know what we're doing. And in the document, he goes, "How are people gonna know what we're doing? We didn't have a fucking script." I just I, I he was just so great about that. And then the only other thing was just about um. Uh, Hopper trying to get the footage from the one guy and he wouldn't give it to him. And so they got into a fist fight outside of the hotel. Oh, and the fight spilled into one of the rooms. Yeah. Yeah. I think Karen Black and and Fonda. Yeah. Yep. God, he was fucking nuts. Yeah. Yeah. I I do miss him though. Oh yeah. I I mentioned in a, in a previous episode, I watched river's edge that he was in. And I got excited when I saw his name in the credits. I'm like, Oh boy, what level of crazy are we going to get from Mr. Hopper? Yeah. Oh wait. What? What? Was it you or me? Or God, I'm not can't remember. I feel like I'm mixing things, but like the whole uh, somebody asked what it was like to live with Dennis Hopper. Oh wait, I heard this. I heard this uh, by some, from somebody else. Somebody asked Hopper's ex-wife what it was like to live with Dennis Hopper, and and uh, she said, and apparently she was stone cold serious about this. She goes, "Did you ever see Blue Velvet?" And the interviewer was like, "Yeah," and she goes, "Yeah, that was pretty much any Saturday night in the '80s with Dennis Hopper." Which just makes you go, fuck. Yeah. No. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. Woof. Woof. Yeah. Um, anyways, I just wanted I mean, to. Throw we that shouldn't out speak there. ill of the dead, but I mean, it sounds like he was a pretty predominant pain on the ass in well, on most days of the week. I mean, God, how much of that was was drugs? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, again, I'm not trying to shit on him, but you know. And I know you don't do commentaries, but his commentary on Easy Rider is fascinating. Yeah. I mean, a lot I can of it. Only imagine. A lot of it is bullshit. Yeah. Uh, the thing that, that came about, and they talk about it in Shaking the Cage, they talk about how the music budget spiraled up to a million dollars to pay for the rights for everything that they used. Mm-hmm. Um, in the commentary, he claims that he just called up friends, all these guys, he knew all these guys, like, hey, can I use your song? And they were like, yeah. Yeah, we don't care, man. Use our music. That's what he claims. Like, I'm sorry, man, that's never been true. You have never not had to license music. Yeah. So, I mean, he was in his own sort of delirium dream world, especially when it comes to... I really want to talk about the long cut, which doesn't exist. Yeah. Supposedly. That footage is, is all gone. Well, bring it up. Yeah, I mean, so... Because I read about that, too. By some accounts, it went on as long as four hours, but it sounds like the general consensus was it was about three. And it featured a lot more backstory. Like, I'm fascinated by the idea of showing what Billy and Wyatt did for a job. They were in, like, a traveling show. and They, they were, like, were, stuntmen or They something? were, like, stunt, you know... Bikers. Mo- motorcyclists, right? Yeah. Which is why you see them on those really shitty bikes at the beginning. Those are, like, they, they just left the traveling show and took those bikes with them. And then yeah. there's a whole chase with the cops up through the, the mountains and across the Mexican border after they get the coke and... I'm thinking, yeah, this stuff is really unnecessary. I'm really glad that they took this thing down to 90 minutes, even though when Hopper first reacted, he went, you've, you've made a TV movie out of this thing. Yeah, I remember reading that, And too. I think it, it took him a little while to calm down and go, yeah, okay, I get it. Because they took it away from him. Although, you know... After almost a year of editing it. And the quick the quick little tidbit, because I want to talk about the Xenica, too, is so it was, uh, it was Jaglum, right, who came in and, and, yeah. and fixed it. And yet he only got, like, editorial assistant credit. Or supervising or yeah, something. but he didn't get... He wasn't credited as editor. Yeah. Which is kind of messed up because, by all accounts, Hopper's only cut of that movie was the the extremely long cut. And that just seems so... I mean, it, it's not all about credit, you know, but Jesus, man, you gotta... credit Give credit where credit's due. There's this great... I love this idea that as a, as a director, you can never give enough credit. 
you can never give away enough credit because yeah, when you're a director or in some cases a producer, you're going to get plenty of it. So when you can give it away, do it. And, and Hopper was just never that kind of guy. So, sorry. Yeah, no, there, there are definitely directors that are and, and directors that aren't. And he, yeah, he falls into that, that category that doesn't, unlike somebody like, I don't know, Soderbergh seems very, uh, like one of those guys that won't take the credit if he doesn't deserve it. You know what I mean? He's yeah. very, he talks very highly of his cast and crew and things like that. Just, uh, just to pull a random name out yeah, of the sky yeah, yeah, totally. in comparison. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that long cut sounds like, uh, it sounds interesting. I, it does sound interesting. I, I would, I would, it's a shame that the footage supposedly doesn't exist. I think it would be uh, an interesting comparison and would make, I think it would make for a great teaching tool. Totally. I love, I, I, have you ever read the original opening to American Beauty? No, I haven't. Yeah. It's, it's long. The movie is probably, if they'd shot it, the movie is probably 30 minutes longer. And it's all prior to where the movie starts. And it starts with um, Wes Bentley's character in jail. He's on trial for killing um, Kevin Spacey, uh, is it Lester. And um, and it basically what it is is it's the footage of um, him filming Thora Birch and, and him saying, should I want me to kill your dad for you? She goes, yeah, will you? And, that's, that's, and, then, and then we get to where the movie starts. Um, and I don't think it was even shot. I'm, I'm fair. I'm like 99% confident they didn't shoot it. But in the first draft, there was this whole, you know, that the kid's on trial for killing Lester and ultimately leads. Wow. How, the, how unnecessary, like that would have killed that movie. I, 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 but then again, that's what I'm saying. It's like, you, you know, you can find where the unnecessary moments are prior to, to doing it versus this, which they, it sounds like they shot a, a lot. They shot just everything. Yeah. Yeah. Just point the camera and, and get what you can get. So yeah, you know that's another interesting case of of what if, yeah. you know, and the other one too is the what if uh, American History X, um, the other ending to that. Oh yeah, the the not Edward Norton cut, because American History X as it exists is pretty much it should have directed by Edward Norton on it. Oh, he... that's that's not what I meant. Oh no, I meant that there was there was an ending at least written. I don't think it was shot where um, the movie actually ends with Edward Norton in the bathroom where his brother was shot shaving his head oh and going back to yeah. or, th- or at least that's the, you know that's the that's that's the implication yeah yeah which yeah i don't like that i'm just again yeah just saying just, like yeah just what exist. ifs yeah. Yeah. yeah and again i don't i don't know that american history x would be as impactful with that tacked onto the end yeah yeah agree yeah so sometimes less is more yes yeah absolutely i would yeah. say actually i would restraint. amend that i think almost always less is more yeah and 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 as much as I am, am not as uh, entertained by the first part of the movie, because I'm not. I, I'll throw it out there. I'm not uh, very entertained by the first part of yeah, this. Yeah, I, I don't want to go into a lot of details as far as the commune sequence yeah. goes. because that There's not much that I want to say about it. Yeah, it just it, a lot of it needs to go. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I do like the the um, the pacing of it. We're, and and I, I, I totally got a sense of distance. Maybe because I, I haven't done that exact trek, but... I know what it's like to see the the landscape change, you know, like when I, when I moved from Seattle to Indiana, you, you see how everything changes. And, uh, I, I certainly got a sense of distance and, and traveling. Well, and one of the this. best transitions is when they come into Louisiana and they see a lot of those plantation style homes and, and you've got, uh, Jimi Hendrix doing if six was nine, yeah, which is, Oh, what a great pairing. Can we talk about the, the, but can we talk about the editing of this movie? Yeah. Those, those, um, 
I don't know what you would what would you call that? Those the flash forwards? Yeah. Apparently there was a lot more of that in Hopper's cut, and the only one that survived is Billy um not Billy, sorry, is is Wyatt seeing his death when well, he's at the brothel and he's I, seeing the Yes, but I don't necessarily mean that one where it's a flash forward. I just mean the the the, the editing that Oh the, they're not they're yeah, not yeah. Oh, yeah, they're not always flash forwards. Right. They're just, just the, the quick weird, yeah, yeah. I at first it took me aback. At first I thought it was a mistake. And, or not a mistake, but just like that's a weird choice. And then when it kept doing it, I I definitely grew to like it. Now, I can't tell if that's a style over substance thing, and it was just like we did it because it was cool. Because I don't know, I can't tell you why they did it. I certainly I certainly liked it aesthetically, but I don't. It's one of those like if if you ask Hopper why he did that, I I think it was just because it was something new. Yeah, because they could. Yeah, but uh, I, so I don't know. I don't know. But I just thought that was that was really interesting as well. Yeah, no, I love them, and as I mentioned, I especially love the the flash forward to to Wyatt seeing his own death very briefly and knowing he. I mean, he already knows. I think as soon as George gets killed, he knows they've blown it. I, th- I think he knows and that it, they've blown it, but I don't. And huh. he also, and he also, hmm. I I think his his drive, his desire is gone. I mean, you can see how lethargic he is when they get to Mardi Gras and when they go to pick up the prostitutes and then when they're, you know, it's his last ditch effort, I think, when they take the LSD to try and make something of this. And of course it goes horribly awry as anyone who's done LSD, which I'll confess to you I have, and it was the worst 36 hours of my (laughs) young life. Um not not just because of the LSD, because I was missing it with a, I had a huge cocktail of God knows what. Ooh, it was it was all it was a rough couple of days, um, but that I I do genuinely have that sequence is really jarring in the cemetery to begin with, but once you've experienced it and you know this is pretty much how it goes, because with in any sort of drug taking experience, you're always going to get out of it what you put into it. So if your frame of mind is where Wyatt's is. It's it's going to turn on you. And, of course, Hopper uses that to his advantage kind of in an exploitative way. Yeah. With So for anybody who didn't know or hasn't seen the Shaking the Cage documentary, um, Fonda's mother killed herself when he was 10. And, of course, Hopper knew this and was like, I really want you to sit up here in this statue. We're going to do this whole kind of the bastardization of the Statue of Liberty, and I want you to address her like she is your actual mother. And I don't... If somebody came to you as an actor, I mean, how hesitant would you... Because it sounds like it took a long time to get Fonda there. I, I Man, that's... A, I don't know. I'm, I'm grateful that he did it. Yeah. As a viewer, I'm like, wow, thank you for it's, sharing that. And now we have that for all time. And what a cathartic it's, experience I, you know, to have. It's one of those things where, you know, and if he if he had just straight up refused to do it, you you could step back and go, I understand. Um, it's, you know, I, I, I don't know how public it was. And I don't know how, how public he was with it. it. Sounds like he wasn't very public about it. And... If what my my thought would be this, if it's something that that you deal, with, it's not a public matter, right? It's just it's something that you like like a friend of yours, like Hopper and him were obviously friends, maybe before <laughs> shooting this. Um, Certainly it, not after. Yeah, and you know if you know it'd be like if you if you were directing me in something and you knew something about me personally that you knew kind of tied into what we were doing, and you were like, hey, I want you to I want you to think about X when we shoot this. 
if it's something between me and you that like that, that that like I know you know, but it's not whatever. I would probably do it because it's not like I'm I'm not airing my dirty laundry. No, it's just informing your performance. Yeah. Now, if it's something that you know was either either was more public or became more public after the fact, I'd probably regret it, you know, or or just or not do it. Um but you know, it might, it probably would take convincing, you know, to do something like that, but you know, and then again if it's if it's for your art and it's it's maybe done in a way where it's it's at least not being aired as like look at look at my 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 personal pain um yeah it's hard to say yeah. and i don't know how else you would do it but it does there is a an exploitative nature about it yeah it it feels very personal it's very as again i still remember my first time seeing it and how distressing it was yeah to, and, to and see had, and hear that you had mentioned this to me before this this that particular moment of this movie and and that that, that was sort of him really using the pain of losing his mom in the scene. And I was very surprised in that shaking the cage documentary to hear him say, eventually what it was, was basically Hopper just saying, I'm your director and I'm telling you to do this. And he just said, I, well, okay. Well, the level of respect. Yeah. I mean, again, you have Hopper being very exploitative, but you also have, you have to admire Fonda even more for going, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll do it because you want me to do it and because you think this will make the film a better film. Yeah. And you think it will inform my performance. And who knows? Maybe maybe it was therapeutic. I, I kind of doubt it. But, I mean, who's who to knows? say? Yeah. Yeah. And I and I love the, the use of it's all right, Ma, I'm only bleeding and how much he pushed uh, Bob Dylan to let him use that. He's like, well, if I, get, if I do this thing, I have to have this song. Yeah. I think it's a nice little trade-off. And, of course, Dylan didn't want him to use his specific version. He had, um, I think it was Roger McGowan from uh, from the Birds record a, a, a new version of it for the film. Which also brings me back around. I love the story about Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I, I really like it because they were originally supposed to score the film and, and potentially write songs for it. And when Hopper saw them pull up in the limo, because they were friends of Fonda's, I believe. I think so. And uh, when they pulled up in their limo, Hopper's like, yeah, anybody who rides around in a limo doesn't get my film, and if you guys come back into the studio again, I'm going to have to do you some bodily harm. Oh, that's not what I heard. Oh, that, that that's that a direct quote. That's why he said to them. Oh, that's what he said. That's why he said to Crosby, okay. Stills, Nash, and Young, is like, anybody who rides in a limo, you guys won't get my film, so get the fuck out of here before I, before I turn into Dennis Hopper, essentially, on you. So I feel like I've heard the fondest side of this, which is that they watched a cut of the movie. With the tracks laid on it. Yeah. And at the end... I and uh, Yeah, and that's the other part. This is where you get into the Rashomon... Yeah, yeah, ...unreliable narrator with the making of this film... Yes. ...and who contributed what and who said this and who did that. I mean, that came about with the Rip Torn story as well... ...because Rip Torn was originally supposed to be in the Jack Nicholson yes. part. And, of course, him and, and Hopper may or may not have come to blows. Rip Torn may or may not have pulled a knife on him... Which he won the defamation. I was going to say, yeah, he definitely, yeah, yeah. yeah he won that. Um, Which, good for him, man. Well, and also, okay, hold on. T two things. Um, so just to finish the one story, Fonda said that, that uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash were so moved by the movie, as it was with the music, they were like, we can't we can't beat this. Yeah, we can't do any better. We're not going to be able to do, so they just, they left. And so whether it was that they left because they were threatened or left because they couldn't do any better, the mystery will live on forever. Um, well, I, I get the feeling that Hopper pulled some strings as a producer and was like, no, 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 no. I'm going to show you this thing anyway. 
and see what you guys think. That, sure. that wouldn't surprise me to know that Fonda, as antagonistic as their relationship got between Hopper and Fonda, I wouldn't be surprised that he pulled rank and went, no, 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 I'm showing these guys this yeah. because I want them to do it. But did you hear, So, the, but we talk about the defamation case with Rip Torn. The idea that... Um, and anybody who doesn't know who Rip Torn is... Uh, Men in moder- Black. Yeah, Men in Black or Dodgeball. Oh, thank you. That's the other very... Yeah. yeah. That's what it's, you'll know. You can him dodge from. a wrench. You can dodge a ball. Yeah. Um, the other one, though, was that uh, Hopper tried to sue to get sole writing credit for the movie. Which is absurd. Which, yeah, it really is. Um, and it just shows you kind of the... Uh, how he wanted... I mean, he really wanted all credit for this movie. And I, I love that we're talking about this because this is actually going to come up in an episode a couple weeks from now as well. It's funny that this theme is going to run can't, through. I know. I cannot wait to talk about that. Yes. I'm, I'm very excited. Just wait. Yeah. Two, two episodes after this, just wait. Yeah. Just wait. Yeah. Um, I mean, here's the thing. I took so many notes. I feel like I definitely talked about... I took more notes for this one than I did for the other two that we're recording today. I can't say that. I can't say that. Well, um, I, I'll tell you, I didn't need to on the last one. Because of how familiar I, I am. Hear you, I hear you. I hear you. So your unsung hero was Laszlo Kovacs. Absolutely. I, I, I'm gonna kind of cheat, because because for me it's it's Jack Nicholson, and I realize that he sung. He got an Oscar nomination. I, I realize a Globe, a BAFTA, but, uh, but something else as well. I think he got. But he, oh, he got the National Society of Film Critics Award. Okay. He he saved this movie for me. And I I can't I, I, was at a I can't point, debate that. At I all. was at a point where I was I was like, come on. I, I don't need a backstory. I don't I don't need a huge plot, but I need I need something. I need a reason for me to stay invested in this movie. Well, you need you need this movie to not pull an apocalypse now redux and go 90 miles an hour into the brick wall yes. right when you need it to pick up speed. Thank you. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And um I realize he's very Which, much I'm sung. sorry. Can I tangent for just a second? Please. Uh, Tribeca happened not that long ago. I don't want to Oh, you're going to talk about it. I am. I don't want to talk about you it. You don't just talk about it. Okay. So there is now a third cut of Apocalypse Now, a quote-unquote final cut, Ugh. which I've heard that before. Um, of all the things he took out of Apocalypse Now, he, I mean, he took out the stuff with the Playboy bunnies. Uh, he left the plantation scene completely intact. Okay, so I actually... Didn't touch a frame I of haven't it. read the specifics, but are, you're not kidding, right? You, no, he, so the movie is now... So the original theatrical was... An, I'm sorry, just bear with us on this because no, no, we, need to, we need to deal this. with yeah. this. And we'll deal with it more when we do our eventual Apocalypse Now episode, which yes. I think we want to try and do this year for the we'll anniversary. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. Um, so theatrical cut was just over two and a half hours. Redux is two hours, three, it's three hours and 20 some odd minutes. And then this final cut kind of meets in the middle because Coppola said, well, Redux is too bloated and the theatrical isn't dangerous enough. I think is the, the word that he used. It's not experimental enough. And so he kind of tried to meet in the middle because he can do that. He actually owns the rights to Apocalypse. Paramount doesn't own it. He owns the rights to Apocalypse Now. He can do whatever the fuck he wants with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And God bless him. Sure. Sure. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't mean to, I love Coppola so much, but why? So he, he created this new three-hour cut, but he leaves the plantation scene completely intact. Which is easily the worst part of the Redux. Yeah. I, I want to like Redux because there's a lot of new stuff in the Redux that I love. I love the Playboy Bunny bit. I the, lo- the, the stuff with the, the down choppers. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. I lo- and and some of the, the extra stuff at the beginning, getting a more fleshed out scene with Harrison Ford and setting up why they're doing this. I love all that. Yeah. But at this point, I really want to get 
my own editing equipment so I can make my version of Apocalypse Now, which doesn't have a lick of the French Plantation in it. Because he's right. The theatrical isn't enough. And Redux is too much. Yeah. Uh, I don't I don't get it. I, I, I cannot wrap my mind around why that thing lives completely. I hear you. I, like, I get that he wants to explain what we were doing there in Vietnam and kind of the, the disenfranchisement of the French people and their refusal to leave and, and things like that. But come on, man. We are steaming into the third act. All we want to do is get up this fucking river and meet Kurtz. And you just stop the movie dead for 20 minutes, I yeah. believe that sequence is. Yeah. Anyway, it's... Uh, I promised I wasn't going to get on a soapbox, and I did it anyway. That's all good. No, no, no. So, so okay. So we got, we have, we have unsung heroes. We have favorite scenes. Um, my favorite, I have another do it shot that I oh, yeah, really, yeah. really, really like a lot, and it's, it's a, again, it's a throwaway. It's with the rancher, mm-hmm. and they ask if they can use his barn and use some of his tools because they need to, you know, tweak, you know, Captain America's chopper a little bit there. Yeah. And we haven't really talked about their name. We, we said we were going to talk about their names. Oh, yeah. Just, well, just, I like that there's a very, they, 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 this is kind of their Western. Like, yeah. the motorcycles are Wider their horses. And White, Billy Wider the kid. Billy the kid, yeah. yeah. And the, the tying into the whole Captain America thing as well with the, yes. the bike and the teardrop gas tank. And oh, it's, it's lovely. I love all that. But there's a, a shot. And they must have used like a split diopter lens because both images in the frame are in focus and then you have the sort of space in between which is a little fuzzy is a little out of focus uh which i love those split diopter shots i think they're the absolute goddamn best i love them yeah um they are reshotting a horse and they are fixing the wheel on the motor i yes. love that yes. juxtaposition i abs- i mean it's really on the nose it's a really obvious thing to do but i i love it putting on the shoe and fixing the tire yeah, yeah. I, and I literally like, like that and if we're talking about a horse as a motorcycle the hoof like, yeah. they've got to be the wheels it's yeah it's a it's a direct reference to yeah. each other yeah, yeah yeah i really i really like that a lot yeah that's great i wouldn't trade that shot in the movie for anything else no oh, i hear you hey sorry please continue oh no i was just going i mean kind of what we normally talk about i mean we got shots in we have unsung heroes. Um, I definitely, I mean, it, it's too long as a line, but I definitely Jack Nicholson's little speech there. The freedom stuff is just great, amazing. It's amazing. One thing I wanted to bring up to you as an actor is how you feel about because you've talked to me about this before. When you you hate when actors say if you've got to drink a cup of coffee, you brought this up specifically when you've got to take a drink of a cup of coffee or something like that. And you don't have anything in the cup or the yeah. mug or whatever. And you can kind of tell that somebody hasn't drank something. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about them actually using cannabis? Because they do. Anytime yes. you see anybody smoking in this film, they are actually smoking cannabis. Yeah. I mean, I, I whew, that's tough because I, I am very much of, an, of, a, of a mindset where I would do it. If, if, if I'm a guy smoking pot in the movie, I'm going to do it. Now, everybody has their lines. Everybody has a place where they're not going to go. I, I wouldn't do anything past that. If I was asked to snort coke or do any, any honestly anything, those degrees of drugs, but like, I would smoke out. I would do that, but I wouldn't well, do anything. Well, it's also else. legal in this state, so well, ha, true. Ha, ha, ha. yes, 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 yes. But um, it, it's it's very much about, I, I think, the authenticity of it. And so, you know, if you've got an actor who's not going to do it, you know, then then they're not going to do it. I myself, I don't find I don't have any fault with that. 
you know. I, but I, specifically, I guess what I wanted to ask you are there, there's two moments where where Fonda breaks character because he's high. Yes. And Nicholson breaks character because he's high. Yeah. But they they're able to kind of roll with it. Yeah. And make it feel. I love. More so than the Nicholson breaking his speech about the UFOs mm-hmm. and then s- managing to write himself and come back, which is a, a fantastic feat of acting. Yeah. Because he, he goes over the edge and then he's able to pull himself back and actually finish it, which proves what a master of his craft he is. Yeah. But my favorite is Fonda going, oh, there's smoke getting in my eyes. Yes. It's Fonda literally saying, I'm too close to the fire. There's yes. smoke in my eyes. And they roll with it and go, well, we don't see you moving. Yes. Yeah. I, I was wondering how you felt about those character breaks specifically. Well, here's okay, here's what I like about it. Because um, I figured you were going to hate it. No, no. Because, well, this is what I would say is that's not a character break. And the reason it's not a character break is because it's in the movie. And and because they're actually getting they high. Say, they didn't say cut. Yeah. I mean, that, that's – I mean, the one thing that, that I, I think takes – that's the hardest uh, for me being primarily a stage actor that when I do, like, my little independent film and, and when I do commercials and stuff is – you are acting until they say cut and, and you have to get used to that. And uh, what that scene in particular, especially watching it in the documentary and realizing how, how zoned out he was, if it's in the movie and they're rolling and you didn't say cut, no, you're still, they're still going, you know, it's like, it's like later on um, in the, the Mardi Gras scene where he says, shut up. He's telling Hopper off screen to shut up because he's trying to do the scene. Mm. And again, if it's in the movie, it's not breaking character. So th- that's kind of the way I look at it. Like if it's if it's usable, fuck, then it's in character yeah. and it's in the movie. So I I think that's great. I and it, it's the kind of stuff that you can't you can't plan for. You know, it's it's like if you tape if you if you're filming a rehearsal, but it, it, it whatever was in there was what needed to be in it. Then that's what you'll use. So yeah. Well, oh, great. I'm happy to hear that you you that that sat well with you. Oh, totally. Because so I, I figured yeah. as a professional, you might balk against it potentially. No. The thing that I, I, I envy about that kind of stuff is in the theater, you, there is so much um, – there's so much attention to the written word. You know, you don't – you're memorizing those lines verbatim. You know, and if you go up, it's it's unintentional. You're not riffing. You know, there's no real riffing with the text. Like, oh, tonight I'm just going to – maybe I'll throw in a new speech about blah, blah, blah. Like, you don't get to do that. You don't. That's where film is – oh, like, there's it, – it has that room – to, to play with it. And I, I envy that. I love that kind of stuff because I, it's the kind of stuff I, I, I want to be able to do, but you can't really do it in theater. Um, I think that's great. I love it. Awesome. Yeah. There you go. You got it from the horse's mouth from a professional actor. <laughs> Take that for what you will. Um, so are we there? Are we? I think so. We're an hour and 15 almost. Okay. I'm feeling so, pretty good about it. So, Question time, my good friend, Ian. Oh, I did before we answer question time. <laughs> Come on down to the uh, the Mopop here in Seattle because we have one of the replicas of Captain America's motorcycle hanging ah. from the ceiling in there. Yeah, because well, at it, least it, it was in. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what, it was in there when it was still the AMP. I don't know that it's still in there now that it is now the Museum of Pop Culture. I, sure. I hope it's still in there. Sure, we should it, say, um, yeah, that the other ones. Uh, were stolen <laughs> and broken down and who yeah. knows what yeah um we didn't talk about the end of the film oh thank god yeah yes you're right you're right it's not question time we blew it yes yeah so when they're when they get on the road again and um the, the, again the two actual people who are not actors 
Hopper saw the guy with the goiter on his neck and was like, I want that guy for the shot. When they when they're in the truck and they see Hopper and Fonda up ahead, and like we should I I don't know what, I forget what they said, but essentially they're saying let's fuck with them. That's what they say. And the guy pulls the shotgun off the gun rack in the back of the truck. I'm not gonna lie, I, I did not think what happened was gonna happen. Oh, neither did I. It shocked so, me to my core. When on my first viewing, when the guy says, "Do you want me to blow your head off?" and they're laughing, and Hopper gives him the finger, I'm thinking, okay. You know, I'm not. I'm not surprised by what they said. I'm not surprised by what Hopper did. I I buy all of it. And then when they they shoot him, and at first, and that so that I'm gonna call it that was a chest grabber. I I, I literally was like, and I kind of went, and I was like, no. And then the scene keeps going, and and uh, Fonda turns around and looks at him, gives him his jacket, and goes basically. I mean, they're in the middle of nowhere, so got to go to get help. But then they cut to a shot in the truck, and the one guy says, "I think we should turn around." And I'm not going to lie. Again, I go, oh, fuck. He didn't mean to shoot him. He didn't mean to shoot him. And so when he tur- when, the- when they're going towards each other and the guy shoots Fonda, I I audibly gasped. Audibly gasped. Because I was just I- – I didn't think it was going to go there. And then, when, of course, when we see the aerial shot of the fire – and how I mean, good how good is that final aerial? Well, when you hear how tough it was to yeah, shoot too, yeah, yeah. I mean, Jesus, yeah. I, again, b- b- my second unsung hero is, is Lazo Kovacs because it, it was fucking uh, it was great. But I, again, it, that and again, maybe maybe it's a, maybe it's not the right comparison. But but that the two the two guys in the truck, well, the one guy in the truck shooting the it, it, that in a way it, that's it's the equivalent of showing what happened in Charlottesville at the end of Black Klansman. It's like it's like fuck, wow. You know, as much as we don't want to see it, we needed to see that. And um, yeah, I don't know what else to say, man. It, 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 I, it, it took my breath away, quite literally. That's fantastic. I mean, that's basically the highest recommendation you can give this film. I think. You know, and I, and I think it's important. I think the ending is the ending it needs to have. Yeah. Especially after the sentiment of "oh, we blew it." Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And the idea too of the money in the tube in in the bike, you know, it's gone. You know, and it was all for. In a way, it was for that, and yeah. and that's gone too. Yeah. Well, there you have it. So Ian. Oh yeah. Do you think that Easy Rider should be in the book? Yeah, no, it's one of the most important films ever made. Yeah. And if you haven't seen it at this point, please. I mean, it's it's widely available. Yeah. Get yourself on the Easy Rider watch list. Yes. yes. Get this get this thing up in you. And now, and, and here's what I'll say too, because this was my first watch, and, and I felt similarly, but not nearly as adamant as when I was watching the Deer Hunter, which they, like it, it's the beginning's too long, and then it gets much much better. Oh, I'm glad we're re- has has Deer Hunter sat with you better now? That no, we, it has now, not. now that we're further removed from it. No, you're no. you're still firmly. In- I think I recommended it, but I'm still like torn about my recommendation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but so all of it, and and this movie is half the length of it, but but it has similar thought. It was like, man, this movie needs to to turn, and it does. And while it's you can't really compare the Deer Hunter and Easy Rider, that they both have turns that they need to take. And um, man, as much as I think I think the scenes are more emotional in the Deer Hunter because it's a more I would say more conventional movie. Well, it's also a more personal story. I think this is I found Easy Rider to be more impactful on me. The, the 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 once it takes the turn and um yeah I I this is definitely a yes for me definitely a yes for me excellent um so that is what we think of Easy Rider um uh what we don't recommend is the sequel which I haven't seen but there is a sequel 
Yeah, yeah, I, we won't we won't touch on that. Yeah, um, but we definitely recommend this. So um, we would love to know what you think. So you can always find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Uh, leave us a comment. Let us know um, what you thought of it. If you had seen it or hadn't seen it, we we love interacting with you guys. So feel free to leave us a comment. If you're listening, you're listening on probably iTunes or Spotify or Google Play. Although I found out that if you do those ones, sometimes they branch off into other things because we know people who listen to us on podcasting sites I've never heard of. Um, but primarily, that's where we launched through, so that's where you're going to find us. Um, please, you know, rate, comment, leave us a review. Um, word of mouth is great. So tell your friends. We're not going anywhere. Um, and uh, we got some some great episodes coming up. So until then, I am Adam. And I am Ian. And we will see you next week. <laughs>